The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. So this morning we're concluding a an introductory retreat. And um, I mentioned to those of you doing the retreat yesterday that normally I give a talk on a con on these Sundays because I, uh, it gives me an opportunity to, to sort of share a little bit about the koan aspect of Zen, the Zen tradition. And, um, um, but I'm, I'm not gonna do that today. <laughs> I wanted to um, draw on a couple of different sources. So all weekend we were studying this path of Buddha Dharma, the Buddhist path, and exploring teachings and practices that are both part of Buddhism um, as a whole tradition and the Zen tradition in particular, and our own Sangha here. And what is that path? I came across a poem recently by Nellie Sachs, um, a Jewish-German poet in the 20th century. Um, a Sangha member just has translated um, her poems and gave that to me as a gift. And one of her poems really leapt out. And I don't purport to present her understanding of what her poem means. Um, I'm just really looking at this from a Buddhist perspective. She writes, Between your eyebrows is your ancestry, a cipher out of the sand's oblivion. You have bent the sea glyph, twisted it in the vice of longing. You sow yourself with the seeds of every second into the unheard of. The resurrections of your invisible springtimes are bathed in tears. On you, the heavens practice destruction. You dwell in grace. And her poem captured my attention because I feel like in a way she, again, looking at it from a Buddhist perspective, not necessarily how she intended it, or from my own perspective, really. Um, Kind of the whole, the whole story, in a sense. She, as I said, uh, was German. She escaped Germany a week before she was to be sent to a concentration camp with her mother. She went to Sweden, where she lived the rest of her life. She wrote poetry and plays. She um, was both fairly successful, but also suffered greatly um, to a great degree from the trauma that she'd experienced and the haunting of her early years in Nazi Germany. But as her biography says, she maintained a forgiving attitude towards younger Germans. In fact, the, the Sangha member who, who gave me this, his translation of her poems in the introduction said that in Germany, she's, she's quite well known, um, not so much as a poet, but for her, her um, relationship with Germans. Um, as a German Jew herself, 
um, and her wanting to heal. And so, between your eyebrows is your ancestry, a cipher out of the sands of oblivion. And I think of that as a kind of intimate and intricate communication between your eyebrows. That we practice, and since we're drawing from this very deep, primordial place that is beyond words, beyond knowing, Bodhidharma is said who is said to have set into motion the, the beginning of the Chan tradition in, in China said that it's a special transmission outside, not relying on words and letters, sutras, meaning, but instead is a direct pointing to the human mind, your mind, between your eyebrows, and awakening this deep primordial wisdom that we all possess. We call it Buddha nature. Enlightened mind. A student asked Master Matsu, what is Buddha? And Matsu said, mind is Buddha. Another time a student asked Matsu, what is Buddha? And Matsu said, no mind, no Buddha. The Buddha himself said that the three worlds are mind. And so in Mahayana Buddhism, we speak a lot about practices seen into self-nature, which is seen into the nature of mind. Because it is a path of liberation, and where we are not liberated is in our mind, in our perceptions, and what we do with our perceptions. How we entangle them and then get entangled in those entanglements. But the mind is not the brain. The brain is an organ. And so the mind is not between the eyebrows. But it's not absent of that place either. It is all-inclusive to understand the nature of self is to realize mind. To realize mind is to see into the nature of the self. And so in, to ask or to see the fundamental question of Buddhism as what is the self is really the same as asking what is mind. It reaches everywhere. It includes, but is not limited to your sensory perceptions. And so Buddha mind, the enlightened mind, is the mind of all sentient beings. That's what the Buddha realized. That's what he taught. If it was only his mind, right? If he'd realize, well, I got lucky. (laughs) I realize my enlightened mind, but it's unique to me. We wouldn't be sitting here. He would have had nothing to teach. But because he realized that it is the mind of every human being, And in Mayana Buddhism, certainly in Zen, we see it as the mind of every thing, animate and inanimate. Then practice is not only possible, but in a sense is inevitable for one who wonders. This mind appears within each moment, within this body and mind, as a result of karmic actions and conditions. In a sense, it is our ancestry. An ancestry that is blood ancestry, what we call our family, a human ancestry, the larger family, an evolutionary ancestry, which includes everything. We can think of it as a spiritual ancestry. So lineage in Buddhism 
in the different schools of Buddhism is tracing our spiritual ancestry. We can think of a societal ancestor, ancestry. The many lives that live within this one human life. The infinite moments, sensations, thoughts, emotions, all the things that animate us, that bring us all into contact with all of the wonder and all the good that exists in this world and is the basis for all that is not good. But what is the basis? What is the impetus for these thoughts and emotions and all that appears? So Buddhism has a very, very deep understanding because it is all about studying the nature of mind. Because it is about liberation. And the Buddha realized if we want to free ourselves, we have to free the mind. And so these deep habits, deep within our consciousness, we speak of the three poisons of greed, anger, delusion, pride and jealousy are often included. And those are the basis, those are sort of the the essential sort of core um, forces, we might say. Greed and anger, grasping and aversion. And an aspect of, of delusion is, is neutrality or indifference or apathy. And so that basically covers all the different ways we can respond, do respond, from within samsara. And those deep forces, the kleshas, our afflictive emotions, basically become the ground from which all of our responses to things come from. And so within greed, there's a whole family, right, of ways in which that shows up. Within aversion, there's a whole, you know, world of populated by all the different ways in which aversion shows up. A cipher, right? Something that is um, a kind of a puzzle, something that needs to be understood Right? And until it's understood, it's unintelligible. We can't make any sense of it. And so how it is that we keep falling into the same cycles, right? We're intelligent beings. We see what's going on. We see what we're doing, but we keep repeating these same cycles. There's something, there's a puzzle. There's something that is not understood. And she goes on to say, you have bent the sea glyph, twisted it, in the vice of longing, the dukkha, Disappointment, dissatisfaction, suffering is born out of our attachments, out of that grasping and aversion. And a glyph is like a hieroglyphic character, a symbol, pictograph, something that represents something, something that is, in a sense, standing in. And so we take the objects of our senses, what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch, what we smell, what we think, and we bend them, right? We bend them into our longings, our attachments, our cravings, what we want them to be. We bend them into our versions, what we don't want them to be. And so dukkha is really a very, very active, hyperactive state of trying to control not so much the world, although that's often the way it's directed. It's trying to control things, situations, people, 
But really what it's trying to control is the experience that we're having in relationship to all those. So that we're getting those moments of pleasure and we're avoiding those moments of pain. So in that way, the world just becomes a kind of vehicle that we're trying to manage and manipulate so that we experience, the, 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 have the, the affective experience that we seek. Bending the sea glyph, all of the experiences that we're having, all the perceptions in the vice of longing in accord with our desires and giving them meaning, right? Which is so significant. I mean, think about it. If something arises, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of easy to see when something arises in your mind and it doesn't really mean anything to you. It's not important. It doesn't really matter to you, right? It's not heavy, right? It doesn't really have much purchase. It doesn't grab us. It doesn't pull us in. There isn't much reaction, right? Because it's, it's, it doesn't have that meaning to us. But when something arises and it does have that very significant effect on us, or we react very significantly, we will always find meaning. That the more it affects us, the more meaning it has. Which is why it's so difficult when we're, you know, we experience something that we, that we perceive as a criticism or a threat or some statement on who we are. Why that's so painful to experience, why it's so hard not to become defensive. To argue it away, to rationalize it, to push it back. What is it that's being threatened? What is it that's being hurt? What does that mean? And the fewer experiences of that we have, or rather, in practice, we practice having such experiences, right? I mean, just sit on that cushion for a little bit, and you will encounter aspects of your mind, yourself, your past, your future, that are not exactly what you want. (laughs) That we will perceive them as criticisms of ourselves, signs of who we are or who we are not, what our life is or what it is not, and the pain that comes along with that, the meaning that that carries for us. And so it's really important that we have those experiences so that we begin, can begin, we can practice not being so reactive, experiencing them without so much investment. As the Buddha said, that moment arises, it doesn't belong to you, it isn't you. But it does need to be experienced. Because if we don't experience it, we're not practicing. And that vice of longing, you know, within the demands of of self-grasping, it's a very demanding, the self is a very demanding little thing, isn't it? (laughs) Right? It's filled with agendas and expectations and standards. It comes fully loaded with all of that stuff. It knows exactly 
what's supposed to be happening, what's not. And of course, that self is something that within us, it's not us. It's not a thing. You can never find it. But in that place, there's little room for pliancy or flexibility, letting go. You sow yourself with the seeds of every second into the unheard of. I think of that as sowing the seeds of our karma. Each moment we perceive, we respond, we're creating karma. That's why when things arise within us, out of past actions, but they arise in this moment, they're understood to not, their teachings say that those do not yet have, you're not yet creating new karma. You're just now coming into awareness of something that has arisen. And so in a sense, at that moment, it's clean. But the moment that we perceive it and we start responding, now we're creating new karma. And so that moment is considered propitious, really significant, because we will either continue the stream of that karma, and if it's not skillful, then it's going to continue to be so, or it shifts. It begins to come apart. It begins to be seen through. And that vice begins to open up. The clutches of that begin to loosen. But along the way, we have to develop the capacity to sit in that vice. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you experienced that, sitting on that cushion? right? Where your body and mind, your breath, your energy is as though in a vice. right? And to be able to sit in that right, and not add, put another vice around it, but actually to accept that so profoundly, to relax into that so profoundly, right, that you hold that discomfort without being offended. And that moment is a moment of its loosening. It doesn't feel like that. That's sowing a different kind of seed. And that kind of seed is leading you into the unheard of, the unimaginable, what has not yet been known. The mind becomes ever more clear as we enter into the inconceivable, the inexpressible, boundless nature of mind. I was studying a text, and in the introduction, there was a, <clears throat> I thought, a nice sort of presentation of this. It's nice to hear it in different words. It says, unlike beings who misguidedly pursue states of permanent happiness in the upper realms of samsara, so that's really talking about just ordinary life where we think that, you know, the more you get, the better you'll be. Just hold on to it fast. Unlike living in that way, practitioners of the Dharma understand that all samsaric states, whether high or low, easy or difficult, are transient impermanent, and unable to provide the definitive relief from suffering that we seek. Right? I mean, that's the beginning, one of the beginnings of the revolution, is realizing that that dream, that that promise, that hope, that if we just keep trying harder, doubling down, accumulating more, becoming more proficient within samsara, will somehow win. <laughs> That's the illusion that has to be seen through.
And so it says, in search of liberation, therefore, the practitioner comes to a moment where they turn from samsara altogether. They decide, okay, that path is not no longer viable, which is a very profound moment. And it often happens when it's kind, we can be turning away and not know what we're turning towards. Yet. It says, the definitive rejection of samsara or renunciation marks the beginning of the specifically Buddhist path. And he talks about how traditionally renunciation is, is a monastic term. Leaving home, going forth into homelessness. <clears throat> that that's how it's been understood down through the centuries. He goes on to say, as an all-embracing ethical discipline, however, it involves a profound reassessment of the personal relationships and attachments, the hopes and fears that make up the fabric of ordinary worldly life. Renunciation is, in fact, incumbent on all Buddhist practitioners, whether clergy or lay, and is the indispensable basis of any authentic and serious practice. And I thought this was very interesting because renunciation really is usually associated with monastic practice. So when you're here, right? So you don't, we don't choose when are we going to wake up, right? How much time do you have before you, you, you start your morning meditation? What's for breakfast, right? What kind of work are you going to be doing today? All of those things, who are you going to be hanging out with? <laughs> having a meal with, right? Though we don't, we're not choosing those things, right? We are renouncing those choices. And renounce, renunciation has, is a freely given thing. To take something away from something, someone is not renunciation. Renunciation is giving freely, releasing. So in a sense, when we come into training, we, we renounce the ability to make all of those Choices. We freely give those up, right? So that we can do something that that allows us to do. To train the mind, to meet our desires. So all those moments when we have renounced something, freely it's like, oh, I really would like that or not like that. So that's a moment of renunciation, right? That's a moment where you think, I did this to myself. Right? This isn't coming from the outside. And that it's a profound reassessment of our personal relationships and attachments, our hopes and our fears. In other words, those things we base our life on. To reassess, to reflect, to be aware, to be intentional. To not just keep doing what we've been doing because that's what we've been doing. And so we practice the precepts, right? What are the ways in which we, human beings, no matter where we show up, what country, what culture, what language, what time, the things that human beings tend to do, have a proclivity to do, that cause suffering? They're pretty universal. Everybody knows them, right? So those are the things. So we have to really focus because that, that's the karma that we create that binds us and binds others. But in every one of those, those precept actions is what 
is it's, it's opposite. It's, it's enlightened activity when we liberate the self, when we liberate that action from greed, anger, and delusion. So inherent within that action is, which is suffering, is its liberation. And we practice the paramitas, the path of the bodhisattva, patience, generosity, joyful effort, meditation, wisdom, the precepts. And without those, the Buddha said, this isn't really going to work. <laughs> yeah. He was pretty clear. He said, if we don't actually <clears throat> live our life differently, our life is not going to be different. Right? Now, logically, that makes a lot of sense. But we're not just logical beings. We like to think that we're wholly logical, and we can logicize our way out of any box, but we see that that's not so. A profound reassessment, which derives, the author says, from a... <clears throat> says, challenging and revolutionary, revolutionary as this reorientation of our values, of our, the way we're living, of the way we're seeing the world, is it derives from nothing more than an attentive observation of life itself. Very simple phrase, an attentive observation of life itself. Well, aren't all of us attentively observing our life? No. We're not, actually. In fact, when we come into practice, we really, it's one of the very humbling things we encounter, is the degree to which we have not actually been attentively observing. How much has been passing by? How much has been showing up right in front of us that we have not been noticing? And that's kind of the way samsara works. You know, samsara and all of its systems are designed not only to not be seen, but to encourage us not to observe, not to be attentive. You know, it's kind of like living within an authoritarian regime. I was just reading an article recently in a magazine about uh, uh, some scholars who have studied what are the, the characteristics of authoritarian regimes that sort of ensure their success, their longevity. And one of the key aspects is you cannot allow questioning. And so to control the press, you have to have a strong military or, you know, pushing down force. You cannot allow people to attentively observe and comment or respond to, criticize. And so that's part of the revolution. We're breaking that taboo within ourselves. Seeing our attachments, seeing our false views, seeing the way in which we have been actively involved in creating suffering for ourselves and others. And then at the same time, we're seeing, oh, that's been going on along, and that's been going on everywhere I look, and now we can see it. That's why Mara, this personification of our, our delusion, deluded self, right, is always trying to, to go to a practitioner who is attentively observing their life 
and distract them from that. It's very, it's very plain in all of the places where that occurs. There's a story of one of the Buddha's nuns, Alavika, and she was practicing one morning, and Mara showed up. It says, the sutra says, wanting to arouse fear and doubt, wanting to make her fall away from her solitude, away from her meditation. And so Mara said to Alavika, there's no escape in this world, so what are you trying to do by meditating? What are you trying to do by being a nun? There's no escape from this. You're wasting your time. Enjoy your sensual delights. Enjoy all the good stuff. More, more. Don't be someone who has later regrets. If you keep going this way, you're just going to be disappointed. And so Alavika thinks, who is this talking to me? And then she says, ah, it's Mara. It's me talking to me. It's that aspect of myself that wants to thwart, that wants to send me back into that dark shadow, back into that cave, to close my eyes again, to have me turn away. And it's a real force. I mean, I think that must be the sort of, the the essential source of all of the good versus evil evil stories that exist throughout history. It's this story. And so then understanding that Alavika says, oh, Mara, there is an escape in this world. Well touched by me with discernment. I have touched it. I, have cont- I am in contact with it. Something that you, kinsman of the heedless, I like that. Kinsman of the heedless, of those who do not take heed. You don't know this. You have not touched this place. Sensual pleasures are like swords and spears, the aggregates, the ways in which we create ourselves, the executioner's block, what you call sensual delight is no delight for me. Now, Mahayana Buddhism sees this a little bit differently, but the sensual pleasures are in and of themselves not the problem. It's the investment, the meaning that we put into them, the unrealistic hopes and dreams that we invest in them. And then it goes on to say, and yet the self is so self-protective that it has many mechanisms that through forgetfulness, make believe, or resolve to remember only the good times, habitually insulates itself from its real predicament. I thought that was a very nice way of saying how we insulate ourselves from the reality that we're in the midst of and that we know, otherwise, why would we create an insulation? (laughs) Right? You don't put insulation in your house until it's cold and you feel the cold. Then you put in insulation. So we wouldn't be doing that, engaged in that activity, if we weren't already aware that something's going on that we want to not see, not experience, not know. The resurrections of our invisible, of your invisible springtimes are bathed in tears. And I was thinking about within samsara, our attachments, our false views, those tears are tears of pain and confusion, of loss and disappointment, of our sadness, which for many of us is the 
the seed of our practice is what brings us into practice, is what convinces us to no longer trust, right? Our clinging and our false views and so on. But when the self is liberated, when greed becomes generosity and anger becomes compassion, delusion becomes enlightenment, then those tears are the tears of compassion. When the self is liberated, they, those tears freely flow out of compassion, both for all of the unspeakable beauty and love that exists in this world, but also for the pain, the unnecessary, the pain that exists in every direction. And so those invisible springtimes can be all of the fantasies that we will never realize, that we cling to. Or they, we could understand them as the inconceivable, eternal spring of enlightenment. So that we free ourselves from the heaven's practice of destruction on me. And so in Zen, in Zen training, the first practice that you're really introduced to is Zazen, right? You come in, we say hello, how nice to have you, give you a little supper, and then Zazen. The most important thing we or Buddhism has to offer. Within the path of the Bodhisattva and the Paramitas, and within this week of giving thanks, Giving is considered the first and the most essential practice, or the beginning practice. Dhanaparamita, to give selflessly, to give without any hope for reward or recognition, to give even without any sense of giver and gift and receiver. Just giving. And there's a recognition that ordinary beings, everybody wants to be happy, ultimately. Every living thing seeks life turns towards life. But there's a recognition that that happiness doesn't come uncaused, right? We have to create conditions under which we can liberate ourselves. We have to create conditions in which we can open our heart in compassion. We have to create conditions in which we can recognize and practice the things that hold us back. And so the Buddha said, the act of giving is the first practice for the bodhisattva, for the practitioner, because everybody understands that language. Everybody understands that. And in that, something happens when we give. Something happens. There's a teaching that says, even for people who have, whose faith and compassion are negligible, whose disposition is extremely rough, and who only move themselves out of their own interest, self-interest, when they receive something, when something is given in generosity, which means for no, without any intention of something being returned. It's not a mutual exchange, it's just giving. Even somebody who has very little compassion or generally only acts out of their own self-interest, when they receive that kind of encounter, that kind of generosity, it says something happens. It begins to shift something, begins to open up a possibility. 
says, even if a person has no compassion, but has, has an open hand, in other words, they may be acting out of some other reason, right? Some other motivation. Not to alleviate suffering, not, not to be generous. But there's still, there's some generosity in their action. That it says that that begins to bring them into the presence of superior beings, sublime beings. I think we could understand that as that that begins to open us up to the world we're already in, to the people that already are present within our lives. Now we can see them. We couldn't see them before. That that's the power of generosity. Dogen says, when a person who practices giving goes into an assembly, people take notice. We experience it. You know, when you're in the presence of somebody who's generous, they don't have to be actively giving. Just their being is giving. That's the power of mind. That's the power of thought. That's the power of intention. Think of the pure precept of practicing good. Just being having goodness within ourselves, not because of what it's going to do for us, not because it's going to liberate us, not even necessarily because of what it's going to do for you. But just the more that takes, becomes alive and real within us, that that is perceived. People take notice. And so he says, know that the mind of such a person communicates subtly with others, without language, without words. And so in this way, practice giving a phrase, a verse of the truth, anything. So there are lots of teachings that talk about how important this is and make place an emphasis on it's not the value of the thing that you're giving. It's the giving that is so transformative. And, and it's said that even an act of generosity that isn't combined with wisdom isn't coming from that place of selflessness, can still be dana paramita if that act of generosity is dedicated to alleviating suffering, is dedicated to enlightenment. So I may still be coming from a place of self-clinging. My motives may be mixed. Maybe I do want you to recognize that I'm giving something to you. But within that, I also... Have, have sort of established my life, have, have a vow that I want to make my life one of enlightening beings, of alleviating suffering. Then that action, even though it's, it's still got grasping within it, is on the enlightened path. And so Dogen says, not only should you make an effort to give, but look for every opportunity you can to give. You're born into this present life because you're originally embodied. You originally embodied the merit of giving. In other words, just being born into this life is a result of giving. He says, the Buddha said, if you practice giving to yourself, how much more so to parents, family, friends? So what he's saying is giving includes giving to yourself. And it's interesting within this passive selflessness and letting go of attachments that there's, there's, a, there's an ongoing recognition that it's important that what you do, what we do, 
benefits ourselves and others. That's bodhicitta. Right? That if you're going to set a table, make a wonderful meal for everyone, you've got to have a seat for yourself. And sometimes that's harder, isn't it, for some of us? And so he says, thus know that to give to yourself is a part of giving. Even when you give a particle of dust, rejoice in that act. Notice it. I remember Robert Thurman was here years ago, and he was leading a retreat. I don't remember, he was maybe asking a question about how, how much do we sit or something, and people were being very shy and timid. They didn't want to be bragging you know, so they were downplaying. He said, no, no, you should, you should celebrate how much you sit, how much you practice. You should put it on a wall, chart it. Add it up. <laughs> Rejoice. He said, it's a good thing that you're doing. <laughs> but don't brag. Rejoice in that act of giving even a particle of dust because you authentically transmitting the merit of all the Buddhas. In other words, in that action of giving, selflessly, in that moment, you are in that lineage, in that ancestry of bodhisattvas, of Buddhas. And then Dogen says, the mind of a sentient being is difficult to change. Right? Have you noticed? <laughs> But isn't it good to hear that just said flat out, straight up? Difficult to change. Let's acknowledge that. Which is interesting given that it is nothing but change. But it's difficult to change in new ways, out of its old ways. And so he says, so keep on changing the minds of sentient beings, which means yours as well as others. From the first moment that you offer one particle of dust to the moment that you and others attain the way. This changing the minds of sentient beings is initiated by giving, generosity. And this is why it's the first of the paramitas. Mind is beyond measure. Things given are beyond measure. It's not about measuring, adding up. It's the giving itself. And so he says, in giving, mind transforms the gift, and the gift transforms the mind. And so when we give, it's going in both directions. All of practice is like that. Every act, delusion, is like that too. When I am angry at you, it's going in both directions. When I inflict my suffering on you, it's going in both directions. I won't see that if I don't attentively observe. So I'll end the poem. Morning light, burning incense, breakfast on the table. The giving that appears without calling, without naming, is received beyond knowing, and yet, and yet, each and every simple act is calling you in, is bringing you forth, is healing the scars of the burning.
you dwell in grace, in Buddha nature, in selflessness, in wisdom and compassion. That's the essential teaching. Everything else is basically just, well, what about that? <laughs> Everything else is, is that so? Hmm. What do I do with that? So thank you to all of you who came for this weekend and this morning. I hope that this helped you in some way and that whatever direction you take, you take a direction with your eyes open and you take a direction that is worthy of your precious life and that you extend that and make that large. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.